So welcome back to our Q&A time. The first question is, my understanding is that we can only do good by the Holy Spirit being in us. Did the Holy Spirit live in Adam and Eve? Will the Holy Spirit live with us in heaven? So there's a difference between our current circumstance and Adam and Eve in Eden. Adam and Eve in Eden were created sinless. They had no carnal nature. They had the capacity in themselves with their own human strength prior to sin to make right choices and to choose to say no to the temptation at the tree and to develop a perfectly holy and righteous character. They had that capacity in their sinless state. We do not have that capacity in our fallen state. We can only succeed through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So no, the Holy Spirit was not required to live in them, to empower them. They were built with the internal um, um, sinless power to be able to act righteously if they so chose to. After they sinned, so after sin, they required the Holy Spirit, but not, not prior to, to sin. Yeah. Um, yes. That, thank you for that clarification. Um, and then the next question about the Holy Spirit says that John 7.39 says the Holy Spirit was not yet given out. Um, wasn't the Holy Spirit always on earth, even at creation? So that's true. So the difference here is the Holy Spirit has, has different um, responsibilities and roles. The Holy Spirit was part, involved in creation. You read about that in Genesis 1. The Spirit uh, hovered over the face of the deep. Uh, the uh, Holy Spirit, after sin, was immediately being used to uh, intervene in the hearts of human beings. Uh, God says in Genesis 3, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, putting a desire for good, convicting of sin, law, uh, drawing and wooing. The Holy Spirit is described in uh, Psalms chapter 51, uh, when David prays, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So the Holy Spirit has always been active for, ever since the, the, the fall, for bringing conviction of sin, uh, conversion, transforming, maturing, sealing, settling of sinners. Uh, it's always been the case. Then what's going on in John uh, seven thirty nine? then? This is a different function of the Holy Spirit. This was the particular pouring out the Spirit for gifting of individuals for the advancement of the gospel message in the first century church. This is the Pentecost. This is the outpouring where people had the gift of language where they could speak and they had the gift where they could have uh, different uh, pastoral gifts and other types of gifts for the church was empowered very quickly to advance this message effectively. That type of gifting of the Holy Spirit didn't happen until, but the, the Holy Spirit's working on hearts and minds has always been true. I am confused by Matthew twelve thirty, Luke eleven twenty three, Mark nine forty, Luke nine fifty. Uh, that um, if you are not with me, you're against me. Uh, and uh, yet, uh, and then, but don't silence those who are sharing things that aren't with us. It seems to be this contradictory thing. Uh, I will tell you, it's a great opportunity if you'd like to know my thoughts on this to look every one of these up in the remedy. And read them all in the Remedy New Testament. If you don't have the app, it's a free app for your Apple or Android devices. You can download the Remedy app, and that will include the Psalms and Genesis, as well as the New Testament. You can go to our website, and there's a Remedy tab at the top, and you can look them all up on our website. But I encourage you to go uh, read these for yourself in the Remedy, and then come to your own conclusion. If you still have questions after that, then let us know. In the, is it biblical to say, quote, rest in peace, unquote? Considering context matters in the following verses, Daniel 12, 13, where Daniel, God says, you will rest in the dust until the resurrection. And then other places in scripture that uh, my peace I give you, not as the world gives and so forth. So then we really say, rest in peace. So I guess it really depends on what you mean when you say rest in peace. What do you mean when you say rest? Are you, when you say that, are you saying 
well, I know that you have the peace of God and are saved and are going to be in heaven when you use those words. Well, you may not be able to say that for everybody. If you simply mean, well, we know that when people uh, go into that first death, they're resting in a state of sleep and they're not being tormented and they're at peace. Uh, It really depends on what you mean. So I, I think it could be used. I think it's not the words themselves. There's nothing magical in them. It's what do you mean when you're saying it? Yeah. In Isaiah 57, it says, The righteous perish, and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. Okay, so this is the point that this person's asking. Can you say rest in peace for the unrighteous? It depends on what you mean. They're still at peace right now. They're not being tormented, are they? Okay, so uh, it really depends on what you mean when you say that. You, uh, let's see. You said you'd get questions and emails after last week's lesson. So here we go. <laughs> okay, and, th- and I'm not going to read the whole thing. Cause it's very long, but it, it describes that in the Bible there is a first tithe and a second tithe. And then the Deuteronomy text about the tithe and buy straw drink and so forth is talking about the second tithe. Um, and uh, the first tithe is a 10% tithe. And the second tithe is the one you do two out of every three years, this way and that way. Um, should there be an official organization supported by the Levites that get the first tithe today? Uh, should we actually have a second tithe? Uh, actually, if you look in Scripture in the Old Testament, there was actually three tithes. First, second, and third tithe. Okay? And, and if the tithe is 10%, then how does that even work out? 30%. Yeah, 30%, she said. Some people have all different... The, the point is, this is a great question because it confirms exactly what I said last week. And what did I say last week? Every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. That it's not a rule. That I can't set a rule for you to do. That the Bible is not a code book of lists to be done and deeds to be done and sins to be shunned. It's not a list of that stuff. When you read this kind of stuff, then it's for you to say, what are the principles? What was the purpose? What was the context? What was it happening? Is there some lesson there that can apply to my life today that God would have me do in my life? And you might be convicted to do something that I'm not going to be convicted to do in my life. Every person be fully persuaded in their own mind in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 14 on questions like this. So it's a great question. I will not uh, set up a structure system of rules that, the, uh, that, that we are all to abide by for, for everyone else. I know some people really like that. Some people really, really like somebody else telling them the rules, particularly elementary school kids. Sure, truly, and it says right in Hebrews uh, that you, you should be on, on, mil, uh, on meat, but you're still on milk, on, on the elementary teachings. That's what that actually says in Hebrews chapter 5. Okay, and what elementary children like? They like a ruling from somebody in charge. They want the referee, the umpire, the teacher, somebody to, to tell them, who's right, teacher, who's right? They don't actually want to figure it out for themselves. They want a ruling. And sadly, many Christians want someone to give them a ruling to tell them the answer. They, because most elementary kids, they want to be right. They don't want to be wrong. They don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to get a demerit. They want to get a gold star. They want to get, a, they want to get an A. Okay? So tell me what I do and I can get my gold star. And this is much of Christianity. That's not what God wants. God wants you to do what's right because it's right, and you understand why it's right. And you can't be told what that is. You have to actually figure out the reasons. You've got lots of gold stars. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Jennings, your remedy translation of Matthew six fourteen to 15 is the most grace-focused perspective I've read. 
Would you please expound on the, expound on the connection between our forgiveness of others and God's forgiveness of us? So this is what the text, I'll read it so you guys can know what was being referred to. For it is when you forgive others their wrongs that your heart is open to receive the forgiving and healing power of your heavenly, your heavenly Father extends to you. But if you harden your heart and refuse to forgive others their sins, your heart is closed and unable to receive the forgiveness your Father, Heavenly Father extends to you. This is how I paraphrased it. You know, uh, as, as, you, as you forgive others, the Father forgive you. What law lens you looking through? This is clear design law. Under an imposed law, um, it's a rule. God, God is forbidden by law and rules. He can't give you legal forgiveness if you refuse to give somebody else forgiveness. So he's restrained, okay? It's all legal, mechanical. Uh, in the design law view, God forgives everyone. Father, forgive them. Jesus on the cross, God the Son, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're all forgiven, crucifying, forgiven. But they didn't open their heart to receive the forgiveness. Thus, they didn't come to repentance. Their hearts were not transformed. So even though from God, forgiveness is flowing, their hearts are hard, so it doesn't enter. And so their state of being is in a state of unforgiveness because it did not work in them a change of heart and character. So they remain unforgiven in state of being and function, even though God forgave them. Now, for the legalists, that doesn't make sense. Because if God forgave them, then they're forgiven. It's not about getting God. God forgives us all. It's about the condition of our heart. Have we accepted and received and been transformed and then reconciled? But, but even the wicked who die in the end, they die forgiven by God, but they still die with hearts that hate him and don't trust him. And he's not mad at them. He still loves them. So they uh, reference Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14. This is where uh, Moses gives this long list of all the things. If you do all the things I tell you to do, you will be blessed. You will have kids. You will have land. You will have vineyards. No one else will take them. You won't go to war. You will succeed. You will be all these, all these, all these, all these blessings, long, long list of blessings. But if you don't, then you have cursings, cursings, cursings. All this bad stuff's going to happen if you don't. And then they go on to say, this doesn't talk about being a cheerful giver. It simply talks about doing these things and you'll get blessed. It feels paganistic. If I'm good, I'll get. What am I misunderstanding? A lot. <laughs> yeah. So, w- w- first off, you're misunderstanding context. You're misunderstanding the context of human history. Where are we at in the thread of human history? What is the whole focus of the Old Testament? Guys, what's the whole focus of the Old Testament? Say so, it. Coming Messiah. Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve sinned, God promises that the seed of the woman is coming to crush the serpent's head and to save the human species. And the whole Old Testament narrative is the fulfillment of that promise. Everything focused. That's why we focus down. Everything we focus on is that channel through whom Messiah is going to come. So what you're seeing here is God's promises to this group of people through whom the Messiah is going to come, that if you do these things, he will protect this avenue. If you don't, then he will have to protect it through pruning rather than blessing. And you will go through hardship, but he's still going to protect the avenue. And that's what you're describing here. It has nothing to do with paganism. It has to do with purpose and function and outcome. And, and why was stoning permitted in the past, but, God frowns upon it, uh, but now God frowns upon it? What changed? Interesting wording 
uh, stoning permitted. Was it permitted or was it directed or commanded? It was commanded in the past. By whom? By God. By God in the past. Through, through, yeah, by God, through angels and through Moses. They had some specific directions in, in this structure. Again, what's the context? And what changed? Does God change or see the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? Same. God doesn't change. So why is it God commanded stoning here, but Jesus didn't stone in the New Testament? If God doesn't change, what's changing? People, people. People and setting and circumstance and need. Might a parent, and you maybe have read stories, true stories, there's actually made some movies about some of these, circum- some of these uh, situations, uh, but ha- have you heard stories of extreme circumstances where somebody either themselves or a loved one cut off, cut off their limb because they were trapped? Oh, yeah. Have you heard that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And would you say, why is it that uh, at this time they were cutting off limbs? But over here, at Potluck, we don't cut limbs off. (laughs) See, God is working through all human history to destroy sin and save sinners. At certain times in human history, certain actions were necessary for therapeutic interventions. And this is what you're happening in Old Testament times. God is meeting people where they are. And so I gave this example before. I'll do it again because people seem to have a hard time comprehending how it could be an act of love to tell people to stone somebody. Uh, so I'll tell the story. It's a true story. I'll tell it again. Uh, during the uh, after Desert Storm, Desert Shield, when the United States uh, was uh, governing the green zone in Baghdad. So we have our soldiers there and we have a... a, a uh, uh, a temporary government that we are administrating. So there's a U.S. governor governing and, and we are policing and we're holding the order of society together in Baghdad, in the green zone. During that time, there was a grocery store that was firebombed and the grocery owner, store owner and two employees were killed in the firebomb. In the investigation, the reason the store was firebombed is because a local mullah, uh, which is a Islamic cleric, put out a fatwa, which is an order, that celery stalks and tomatoes are not to be sold or displayed next to each other because this could be a phallic symbol, okay? And this grocery store had them displayed next to each other. And therefore, the followers, these fundamentalist followers, blew up the store and killed the owner and the two employees for displaying celery next to tomatoes. Now, if you are the governor, and, and so the people believe that that particular behavior is a crime worthy of death. That's what they believe. That's where the people are. Now, if you are the governor of Baghdad, which in your judgment is more serious? Celery stalks next to tomatoes are driving drunk. <laughs> which in your judgment is more serious? Driving drunk, yes. Okay, one person got that. Okay, good. <laughs> if you're the governor and you want the people to recognize that driving drunk is at least as serious as celery stalks next to tomatoes, what punishment must it have? Death. It must be a death penalty. If you give it a $500 fine, they won't take it seriously. Wow. That's what's happening in the Old Testament. These are former slaves 
If you didn't do something the master want, they could take you out and kill you for any reason. And that's where they were. And God met them where they were to lead them to where he'd have them be. And, and you're seeing that through the course of their history. And so as the people change, then the, the rules, rules that help guide them can change until they grow up and mature and actually live the principles of God in their heart. And Tim, there's a, another just practical reason that million plus people did not have any jails or anything like that to That's keep true. someone there. And when someone like a, like a, a stubborn child who wouldn't, who wouldn't <coughs> listen and wouldn't do anything right, what were they going to grow up and be? Just predators. On, to the prey. And okay, so there was that element of it as well, that they did not have um, any structure for uh, imprisoning and rehabilitating individuals in that time and setting. And so um, there was that part of trying to keep a certain order in, in the group as well. You're exactly right. So I would like to understand more about the, quote, fit man, unquote, who led away the scapegoat into the wilderness in the Day of Atonement. How does this apply to the end time when Satan would be led away to his ultimate doom? Uh, who represents the fit man? It's, it's, uh, uh, I will just cut to the chase. I don't have time to actually go through all the elements. Uh, the fit man, if you want to read about that, read in Revelation chapter 20, where an angel comes from heaven with a chain and binds Satan for a thousand years in a wilderness. The fit man is the angel that binds Satan for a thousand years in the wilderness. So I don't have time to go into the whole rest of it. It would take an hour-long presentation to go into all the uh, elements uh, of, of, of that question. Some people uh, think the scapegoat actually represents Jesus. Uh, that's not the Adventist view. And the reasons it's not the Adventist view, it has to do with... Um, the reason some think, think that is because it's involved in atonement, and how can Satan be involved in an atonement? Uh, and the short answer is, is because what's placed on Satan uh, is the responsibility and the source of all the sin. And at the end of time, everybody who is saved recognizes that sin comes from Satan, death comes from Satan, lies comes from Satan, and God is not responsible. So our minds and hearts are cleansed from all the lies he's told, and they're placed back on him to be the one responsible, and then he is let out in the wilderness. So that's, that's the bottom line of what that, that represents. Not acts or deeds. Acts or deeds are not placed on them. It says, uh, let's see. Um, how were fathers able to bless or curse their sons in Old Testament times? For example, why wasn't Isaac able to give Esau a good blessing? Esau's blessing sounded more like a curse. And how is he able to give the blessing to Jacob? So uh, the blessings, if you read Jacob's blessings to his kids and all these other blessings, these are actually, again, what law lens you're looking through. If you're looking through the human law lens, then these blessings and cursings are causal. The person in authority above gives a blessing or gives a cursing, causing outcome, because that's what happens. I give you a ruling. I give you an edict. I give you a grade. Okay? That's not what's happening. All the blessings and cursings are prophetic uh, of the characters of the one. And they're describing what you're going to become and, what's, and, and how your life will unfold through a prophetic vision. So Isaac is actually prophesying, and so is Jacob, about his kids. And it's based on the types of characters that they have developed already and what insight God has given them in pronouncing these blessings and or cursings upon their kids. But, it, but the, the causal agent is inside the, the, the children and what they choose to do with their lives as they grow up. And that can be changed as Levi changed what was, was, was caused, what, what would have been his because of his, um, his uh, corruption uh, in, the, in the city 
uh, where, where Dinah was, uh, was taken advantage of, uh, and his corruption was Simeon. Dad gave him a curse, and because of what Levi's descendants did at Sinai, uh, that was reversed, and they became the actual representatives of the priesthood. So it, it's not, these are not causal things. Please explain your understanding of the last few verses of Isaiah, that every Sabbath through eternity we will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled uh, against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, uh, so forth and so forth. This is symbolic language. It's not literal. Uh, Every Sabbath through all eternity, we will not go out and look on dead bodies. Uh, This is simply suggesting to us that through all eternity, we will not have wicked people or sin or disease or things to to deal with. We will live in it. And the Sabbath will be something that we celebrate through all eternity because it will stand for all eternity future as a memorial and an evidence of God's methodologies. He presented truth and love and he left us free and we will still have freedom in the hereafter and we will celebrate that freedom. There's a question here about fluoride. I don't know. So since you've been teaching on offerings, how does uh, Come and Reason allocate their offerings? We use our offerings, the offerings that come in here, for all the uh, activities that our ministry does. We give away a lot of free resources. I can tell you, uh, production-wise, over the, the, I guess, 12 years now that we've been in ministry, I don't have the exact number, uh, but I know we've given, we've, we've, produced and given away over a million dollars worth of, of materials uh, around the, the globe and, and to people. Uh, we have um, purchased and renovated this facility where we can have meetings. We have operational costs that we keep um, with, the, uh, with the production of our materials, the website and, and uh, the staff and the organization that are producing and, and ordering and mailing and shipping. And so it, it really goes towards advancing this message. There's a question here about my thoughts on mission trips and raising funds. I don't have thoughts on mission trips and raising funds. Be be persuaded in your own mind. Raise your own own thought. Come to your own conclusion on that. It says the question on on tithe was not about asking for a rule. It was uh, your thoughts on the questions. Maybe certain people do take whatever you say as a rule to follow rather than fully persuade in their own mind. Okay, I, I will accept there may be people that take what I say as a rule, and that would then you know, be part of the journey. Uh, hopefully they will continue to come and reason together, and we'll recognize that our ministry is not here to tell anybody what to do. We, our focus is to challenge people to think and to come to their own conclusions and exercise their God-given authority and governance of themselves to live their life in harmony with God's purpose for their life. And we're not here to judge anybody's decisions along those lines, nor tell people or set up rules for people. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the way you have run your kingdom, and we thank you for the methods, principles that you practice, the truth revealed in Jesus, the privilege of getting together and studying and advancing your cause. We ask that you will continue to to bless this ministry and bless those that are aligned with us and support us, that we can be more effective in this world, and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.